There we go. Now I'm on, right? All right. It's the first time for everything. Uh, as far as I know, I've never worn a T-shirt while I've preached up here, here, other places maybe. But uh, I have a reason, and I'm going to let you know that in just a second. Uh, I know I try and, because we're a, a diverse congregation, even in our dress, I try and wear a tie sometimes and um, open shirt sometimes and my blue shirt at times. And uh, last week... Uh, I was given this as a gift from the teenagers, and I said, man, I was really touched. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I was touched by it. Uh, I was, as I was teaching, preaching, I mentioned uh, part of First John that we've covered, and I talked about the word abide or to live or to, you know, to live in God or abide in God. And Rodney said, some of the teenagers turned to him and said, well, that's what we were talking about last summer. And you should give them one of our T-shirts that we had. So they gave me this. And I was touched in many ways. Number one, that they were listening, <laughs> which I know they are. I know they do listen. Um, but it was touching that not only they listen, but they connected what they did last summer uh, to the lesson that we, we, we were, um, that we had. And then in addition to that, they wanted to give this as a gift. And I said, I'm going to wear this. I, said, I don't know. You can't see it maybe from the back, but it says across here, Abide. And let me just throw a little um, uh, maybe advertisement for Rodney and the teenagers. One of the best things that I think is my personal opinion that they do have done for the last two years is their uh, summer work camp. Is that what it's called? Summer work camp? Some, uh, what's it? Hands-free. The hands-free work camp. And um, I've been able to uh, be a part of that, uh, attend really, attend the evening sessions and I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing that they do uh, for the last couple of years, and I believe they're going to plan it this year. want to encourage people to, uh, to participate in that uh, also. Turning your Bibles, 1 John chapter 4, and it says verse 18 on the screen, I was asked today, when am I going to do part two of this lesson? And I said today. It's right here today. Uh, a few weeks before Christmas... We spoke of this passage, and I tried to explain what it said and not what it didn't say, because a lot of times as we come to this passage and passages like this, we begin by saying what it doesn't say. And I said, I'll save that for a, 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 a later, a second lesson. But read with me chapter 4, starting in the middle part of verse 16, where he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. That's the word abide, by the way, that live there. And it's actually three times in that little section. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Emphasis here, confidence on the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And it is with somewhat of fear <laughs> that I came to that passage because it's such a marvelous, awesome verse that, has, that I've really thought of for many, many years. 
back in my 20s, I remember when I first came, read that, and it just, you know, it was stunning what that verse is saying. When I taught the first lesson before Christmas, I had someone come to me afterwards and say this. This is almost verbatim. He said, I don't think you realize how revolutionary your lesson was. And I'm not patting myself on the back, by the way. I'm trying not to. Because I don't think it was, I think the passage is revolutionary. Most Christians live their lives believing they are unworthy and vile sinners. But God loves us as much as he loves his only beloved, sinless, and perfect son, Jesus. God has made us equal to Jesus and loves us that much. Incredible. And as I began to think about that, I came up with all these different, in this next screen here, all these different, you know, when you think of God's incredible love, beyond understanding, implausible, unlikely, fantastic, incomprehensible, inexplicable. I mean, all the superlatives that you can come up with and synonyms, I mean, to try to explain the love of God when we when we really begin to understand it, we, we cannot explain it. it it's, it's impossible for me to be able to try to explain and understand, even understand what this passage says. And it's difficult for us to grasp it. No matter how many times it's stated in the Bible, this love of God is stated more than just in First John. I don't think we're comfortable being loved that much. And the reason is we know we don't deserve it. We know we don't deserve this kind of love. And to be loved like this, we just, it's hard to understand. And that's the point. We don't deserve God's great love. If we did, or if we received what we deserved, then the focus of the gospel would be me, what I've done. To deserve God's love. But the gospel is God-centered. It focuses on his love for us and what he did to redeem us, as Rondell was bringing out to us in his thoughts. It's a love that calls out to us. It's a love of open arms, God's open arms, an embrace with the Almighty. And it's hard to understand that. I think in some ways we're more comfortable with an angry God than the God of love. It's easier for us to respond out of fear of punishment than out of this magnificent love of God. I think it's a natural thing. It's natural for us to respond to God's punishment rather than God's love. And this response that we have that John describes as no fear and of confidence. John says, now this is, and I think this is important, this is mature love. This is complete love. Some of your translations will say this is perfect love. It means mature. This is a maturity that you, that you grow into. And it's important that we understand it has nothing to do with our performance. It has nothing to do with how well I am doing. It's not that I don't have fear because I've conquered certain sins. It's not that, okay, I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer have fear because you see, I stopped smoking and I stopped cursing and I, whatever, whatever you want to put it. And I started going to church all the time and I started giving as I should. And I started, you know, teaching other people. I started doing good things and I stopped doing bad things. And so now I have no fear. 
Where does that leave us? It's a self-centered gospel. And we've said it over and over, this gospel that John has so well explained is God-focused. It's Christ-centered. The fear and the confidence, the no fear and the confidence we have has everything to do with what God has done for us. And how he has declared, he said, this is my relationship to you. God is saying this. This is my relationship to you. If you've come into a relationship with me, this is what it is. You're my child. You're my beloved. This is our relationship. And based on what he has said, then I can respond with no fear and confidence. In the last three lessons, previous three lessons, we've seen this magnificent love. We started with this little verse, God is love. And based on that, there's three different things that he brings out that I saw. He says he makes his home in us. God is love. He makes his home in us. He abides in us. And we abide in him. We have this relationship. We have a love that has confidence on the day of judgment. And that's, that's mind-blowing that we can walk into the day of judgment with confidence. Why? Because God is love. And then we can also come in with no fear. And he says, because we are like him in the, uh, the last part of, the, of verse 6, 17, excuse me, he says, because in this world we are like him. Not, we are, not that we live perfectly like him, but we're like him in the way that God looks at us. God sees us as his children, as his son. And so in this world right now, he's saying in the present right now, we are like him. He views us as he views Jesus. And so we, as we come to this, we, we start thinking, though, but what about? And I'm, I'm sure some of you, if not a lot of you who are listening, are saying, but, but what about this? And what about that verse? And I think that's normal. It's my normal response as I look at this. Is that, well, what about the verse that I used last week, ended on last week, Ecclesiastes chapter 12? This is the conclusion of the whole matter. You know what it says? Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, what about that? You're saying there is no fear, and yet the Bible clearly says fear God and keep his commandments. What about all those who were struck dead when they sinned against God? How about the verse that says fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. Is that your natural response as you look at these no fear? You, but what about that verse? And what about this verse? What, you know, how do you reconcile those things? And I want to say that it's going to be difficult to explain this. I think there's a process of growth in us. I don't have all the answers, okay? So later on when you come to me and say, yeah, but <laughs> I don't have all the answers here. But I do know the Bible doesn't conflict with each other, and I've, I've come up with some, some thoughts on, on this uh, subject. The first thing is to look at is that John says that this is perfect love or mature love that casts out fear. And when our love isn't mature, then fear is still a part of our lives. When our love is not mature, fear will be a part of our lives. And so we have to begin to learn to look at ourselves, the way God looks at us. There was a theologian way back, 16, 17, uh, 1700, I think he died in 1752. His name was Bengel, B-E-N-G-E-L. And 
it's on the free software. He wrote so long ago that if you have a Bible software, you'll probably see his stuff. And it's mainly boring to read, all right? It's hard to read. It's old stuff. But he said something really neat that I discovered. He said people live in one of four states, and he listed them out this way. He said, With fear, without fear and love is one. Put that up there on the screen. I think it comes up at the end there. Where, there we go. Without fear and love. With fear, without love. With fear and love. Without fear, with love. And we're going to look at, I'm going to use these things to explain what he is saying, what I believe the, the scripture is also saying. And I believe that we drift between these states, and especially as Christians, between the last two. As we go to 1 John and the rest of the letters of the New Testament, we need to realize that they were written not to non-Christians. They were written to Christians. And they're trying to help Christians who are in a relationship with God and growing in a relationship with God. And sometimes they're really, really messing up. You read 1 Corinthians, they're really messing up bad. And he's trying to help them grow and mature in their love for God and, and understanding that. It's encouraging them in their growth. And so as we come to First John, we need to realize it's written to those who are in Christ, who are in abiding relationship with him. And in that relationship, he's trying to help us see where we need to be. And so we're going to use these as our points to help us see what I think the passage is saying. Without fear and love. Without fear, without love. This is a horrible and a godless state. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Uh, the, the New Testament was not written to these people who are in this state without fear and without love. It's not saying that we can't use the Scripture to help these folks. We can, of course. That's, it, it, it does that. But it's written to us Christians to help us understand the way the world is, to understand reality, to understand how to think. And how to live our lives. And as we come into the world, as you go out tomorrow, as you go out today and you and you interact with people, there are so many, if they're without Christ, they are many of them are without fear and without love. On the surface, these people don't seem that bad, okay? They seem normal, they're everyday folks, they're good folks, we would say. But that's looking at them on the surface. Under this thin veneer. There's a different person, this, this nice person, this funny person, this cool person. Their true state, their true reality are people that are without fear, without love. Romans describes this. If you turn to chapter 1, verse 18, and of course I'm tempted just to, to spend a whole hour in, in this whole section. I'm going to try and read it fast. He describes people of the world, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And we normally think, okay, this, these are people like Hitler and terrible murderers and all these bad, really bad people because they're wicked and they're godless. But I think he's talking about normal people. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood what has been made so that men are without excuse. Basically, he's saying this. God has created the world that you can look at and say, there is a God. And he says, some people close their eyes to that. They don't see it. 
But he says God's power, his invisible nature, his invisible nature is made visible through his creation. If you'll just open up your eyes, open up your heart and see it. And then he goes on to say, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they were smart, they were educated, they had their degrees, they became fools. Exclaimed the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And we always think, oh, they're bowing down to the idols. That's one way of doing it. Another way is to bow down to the idols around us of materialism and other things, the things of life. Therefore, because of that, because they looked to anyone else but God, God said, okay, live your life that way. Gave them over to their sinful desires of the hearts, sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And then now the most politically incorrect passage in the New Testament. Today's politically incorrect. Verse 26 through 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in, uh, and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to say it was perversion. Oh, that's what the Bible said. And yet, you know, what we do, we say, oh, but, but, but. You see what we do? We sit back and say, but these people are nice. These people are good folks. They do good things. Yes, yes, yes. But what the, what the Bible is trying to get us to say is people who live without God, they're living without love, they're living without fear, they're doing whatever they want, and they say it's okay, it's fine, it's nice, it's good. And the Scripture says, no, it's not. Furthermore, they did not, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, they pushed God away. He gave them over to a depraved mind. He said, okay, think that way to do things that ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed. Oh, greed? Yeah, greed greed's in there too. And depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Shall I read this one? They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You think he's making a point? I think the point here is like, this is how the world is. This is how people are without Christ. Although they know God's righteous decrees and that those things, those people who do this deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. It's okay. It's okay. That's fine. And this describes people without fear. They're not afraid of God. But they're people without love, too. They know a worldly love. They know a worldly fear. But they don't know a godly fear and a godly love. 
And their description is continued to be described in the next verses, in uh, verse, um, what's that, 11 or so. I think 11 through uh, 10 through 12. It's up on the screen. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the reality of life. That's the reality of people who are without Christ. And he sums it up in verse 18 where he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. This describes our society, not only our society, it describes the world. We live our lives, people live their lives the way they want to live their lives. They don't hurt anybody, put quotes on that. They don't bother anyone, put quotes around that. They just live their lives without fear and without love. Self-absorbed, self-centered, they're not aware of God. Or others in a true sense, in a real sense. They live without fear and without love. But they come to another point. With fear, without love. And this is a place where people come to a relationship with God. This is good. All right? This is a good thing. It's good to have the fear of the Lord. It's good to be afraid they're aware of their sins. They, they, some way, by God's mercy and grace, they've become aware of their separation from God. And they come to maybe a passage or someone in their life. Who knows how, they do, how God works in their lives. But it, it says, your iniquities in Isaiah have separated you from, from God. You've been separated from God by your iniquities. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. Not that he's unable to, but he can't because you're not, your sins have separated you. And so it's out of fear of punishment. And many of us, many of us came to the Lord this way. It was, it was because someone who was much more talented than I got up and preached a lesson or sat down with the Bible and you became convicted that I'm in big trouble. If I were to die right now, I have no hope of heaven. The fear of punishment, the fear of hell. And fear is good. When it brings you to a relationship with God. But listen carefully. It's harmful if you have to maintain your fear to maintain your relationship with God. And we're going to get into that. There's nothing wrong unless you live your life here. If this is where you live your life without, with, with fear, without love, you're missing the gospel. You know, fear, think about it this way, fear is stress. And you've read articles that stress is, you know, you get, you know, get rid of stress, it's bad for your heart, it's bad for this and that. Living in stress is not good mentally, it's not good spiritually. Let me give you an example. One of my atheist friends who I've lost contact with, he just, I don't know where he is, he disappeared out of my life. He, he, tried to, he was trying to write a story on how he became an atheist. He was raised in a fundamental Christian church that emphasized the fear of God and emphasized hell and emphasized punishment. And as a very young child, he had a, he had a nightmare one night. In, and I, I don't know all the details. I read it, but I can't remember all the details. But he was in his living room. His parents were there. His brothers and sisters were there. 
and the dream was very vivid in his mind. The, the living room opened up into a big pit, and there were demons there, and they were coming after him, and he saw his parents go into this pit of hell and his brothers and sisters, and he woke up screaming and everything. And this was his image of God. This was life for him. This was reality, is that God is just waiting to send me to hell. And he finally got to the point that he said, you know, I can't live like that anymore. It's easier for me to just push God out of my life and say, there is no God than to live with that. This is where he was, with fear, without love. And it drove him crazy. It drove him into atheism. Atheism. We can't live with a God like that, not abide. We can't minnow. This is the, that, that beautiful word of being in this deep relationship with God. We can't live in a relationship with God, that kind of God. It drives us batty to live in, with an angry God. So we have to push that God out of our thinking and out of our minds. And when he's out of our minds, it's easy to sin. Do you realize that? I mean, it's, how weird this is, is that if you live with a God who's constantly attack that that you're afraid of you will eventually push him away because you can't live with that kind of god and that opens up the door for you to sin because god isn't abiding with you anymore in fact the only time you can really sin is when you believe god isn't watching there is no god he's not watching what i'm doing sin is temporary amnesia forgetting god's with you think about that I was counseling a young man this past week, having problems at home. And I said, well, and he was basically saying, I just can't control myself. I can't control my temper. She gets me so angry. I said, let, let, okay, put, let, let's say you, you two are arguing. You're fighting with each other. And suddenly I come around the corner. What are you going to do? He's going to say, he said, I'd say, how'd you get inside? <laughs> I said, well, Okay. Let's say that you forgot that you invited me in. I was sitting around the corner, and then you got in this argument with your wife, and I show, and I turn around the corner. And suddenly you re- remember that I'm in your house. What do you do? Well, I stop arguing. I stop fighting. Oh, why? Why did you suddenly go from this, I can't control myself, to, oh, yeah, I can control myself? Because the preacher showed up. And that's the way it is with God. You see, we get into these sinful attitudes and actions and what we're really doing in our mind we don't even realize that we've pushed god out we don't really believe god is with us at that point in our existence god is out there somewhere dealing with the world's problems he's not dealing with me right now that's where we believe we are we don't really believe god is there with us or we'd stop doing what we're doing we then move from fear with fear and love, with fear and with love. And I think this is where many, many Christians get to the point, and this is where they, they stop. They've learned about the love of God. They want to practice the love of God. It speaks to their heart's deepest needs. And they've moved from this passage in Romans 1 that we just read to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to this. They've come to God in true fear, which is good. They've turned to him, and now they start learning about love. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
Righteousness means a right relationship with God. This righteousness from God comes, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference. We take this verse out of context many times when we're trying to convict someone of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's fine to use it that way. But listen, we, don't, we, we never read past that. Keep on reading. He's saying, basically, God has provided a way of righteousness, a way that you can have a right relationship with him. And it's not by keeping laws. All right. It's not by doing doing this and not doing this. It has nothing to do with that. It comes through faith. And it's no difference. It doesn't matter who you are, because everyone is sin. Everyone's in the same boat. That's what he's saying. Everyone's in the same boat. And then he says, but they are justified and are justified. Freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. And they're made just like they never sinned. That's what justified means. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. We spent some lessons in First John on that. Through faith in his blood. He did this to de- demonstrate his justice. God gave his son so he could show his justice. He says, basically saying, I'm not going to let sin slide. I'm not going to let your sin slide. They have to be punished. They're awful. They, 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 and he, he, all that wickedness. You were involved in wickedness. You were involved in godliness, godlessness. And I demonstrated my justice through the sacrifice of my son. Because in his forbearance, he left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. And so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, God says, I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to justify you anyway. But I don't deserve being justified. That's true. You don't, be, you don't deserve this. So I'm going to be just and the justifier at the same time through my son, what he has done. And we come to that point in our lives and we say, wow, the love of God. We have the love of God. We begin to see it. And it begins to motivate us. And we see passages like uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 4 is an illustration. He spends the time uh, illustrating this in chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been made just as if we'd never sinned by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And those passages like that just, man, they're just like, they're like fresh water in a desert. They're like light in a dark place. They, they give us joy in our heart when we see this. They inspire love in our lives. And yet, Christians still live with fear. Because, see, what we've done, we have love in our heads and fear in our hearts. That's what I mean, with fear, with love. We understand it up here. We, we have a preacher say it, and we go, wow, that's wonderful. We got it here. But in our hearts, we still have fear. And we say, what about passages like Matthew chapter 10, which we're going to look at in a second, where it says, uh, don't fear you know, other people, but fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. And what about Matthew chapter 7 where it says, uh, uh, depart from me, you know, and they say, well, I did this, we did this and we did that in your name. We'll read it in a moment. We keep the fear of God in our hearts. And we end up, I believe, being somewhat spiritual schizophrenics. We're afraid of the God who is love. But we believe the fear keeps us in line. And so we keep fear. But with this mature love that John talks about 
is without fear and with love. And I think it's rare for any of us to live consistently in this state. And I can include myself. To live without fear, to live in mature love is difficult. There's always this temptation to move back, especially move back one step and live with love, but live with fear at the same time. And yet John says it's possible. I mean, let's let's read it one more time. We have to read it because when we think of all these other thoughts and all, all these other passages, we, we just it's, it's hard to believe that John is really saying this when he says, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him in this way, love is made mature, complete. Among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. If this passage is true that we just read, then we need to begin to view the Scriptures through this. Through the lens of this passage. Remember, this is for those who are in Christ. I don't don't want to give anyone who is outside of Christ false hope. This is only for those in Christ. That's who this is written to. If you're outside of Christ, the only hope you have is to come in a saving relationship, an abiding relationship with him. And then this passage is good news. All right? I don't have all the answers, as I said, but I just want to touch on some difficult passages real, real quick, looking at some passages through the what I'll say the lens of love. Something for you to think about and uh, meditate and maybe correct me and help me understand it better. Also, first place I thought of, as I said, thought about what about Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah, Uzziah, Uzzah, whichever on the screen there. Bing, there you go. If you don't know the stories of Leviticus 10 and 2 Samuel 6, really briefly, two men, they were priests, they went into the tabernacle and they offered fire on the altar. That's what you're supposed to do. And it says he off, they offered strange fire, and fire came from heaven and killed them. Uzzah, I remember as a child thinking, how unfair. Uh, they're moving the ark, and, they're, and he's, just, he's just there. He's just walking alongside the ark. They're moving it because it's been captured by the Philistines, and they're trying to move it to where it's supposed to be. And they have it on a uh, cart, and the ox stumbles, and the ark looks like it's going to fall. And he reaches up and to stop it from falling, which is what I would have done. It's just a natural reaction. And he's struck dead. And we say, how unfair. What's going on there? And the passages are mainly taught, now I may be wrong here, but this is the way I heard them, okay? You better do what's right and don't make any mistakes, even by accident, or God will strike you dead. Now, no Sunday school teacher actually said those words, all right? But that's the message I got. I mean, I'm just walking along, I'm minding my own business and suddenly something happens, and I just react to it, and oops, it was against God's will, and boom, I'm destined for hell. That's how these passages are used. And so I thought, well, what, what is going on there? Let me try and push away my prejudice here and see through this lens what is happening here. 
And I think this is what ha- is happening. These people were involved in the shadows of the reality. We have to have a whole series of lessons on that in, in Hebrews. Basically, the book of Hebrews says this. Everything physical, the temple, the things in the temple, the ark, the incense, the sacrifices, all of those, they look real, but they weren't real. They were shadows of the reality. Who's the reality? Christ is the reality. Everything is pointing to him. Everything is moving toward him. And so when you see this ark and how it's supposed to be uh, dealt with and held and carried and, and honored and, and hidden behind the curtain... All that had to do with pointing to the reality. And what if these people said, oh, it doesn't matter. This, you know, if, if God had not from the very beginning said, it matters. It matters what you do with the shadow. All these things would have just degenerated into mythology. It would have just been, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, it, let me ask you. Maybe you're not like me. I, as a, if I was a Jew... I would be very, very curious what the ark looked like. And the rule was, God's law was, you're not to see it. You're not to touch it. You're not to be near it. You have to go through the temple or the tabernacle into a curtain. And the only person that can go behind that curtain would be the high priest once a year. That's it. As a child, as a... Even as an adult, I would be tempted. My temptation would be to lift the curtain and look. And if I knew there would be no punishment, I knew there would be no consequence, people would be having a party in there. And they did. People messed up. So what I think God is saying here, he's saying the shadow is important. Treat it with respect because it's pointing to Christ. And that's the ultimate importance. And I thought of another thing, too. What if these people didn't go to hell? We always assume they, did. They, they were struck dead, they went to hell, right? What if they went to heaven? The Bible doesn't say. I don't want to preach them into heaven. I'm not going to preach them into hell either. But, you know, I got thinking, what would have happened if suddenly they're like, whoa, and they're in paradise, and Uzzah says, I was just stopping the ark, and God goes, yeah, I know, but I'm trying to teach everyone a lesson. Don't mess with my shadows. Welcome home. Uh, <laughs> maybe. We don't know. We just don't know. We assume some things sometimes that we maybe shouldn't assume. Matthew chapter 10. Oh, my goodness. Time flies. All right, let me just touch on these very quickly. Matthew chapter 10. Do not be afraid of the one who kills the body and cannot, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who destroys both body and soul in hell. All right, this is the passage often we say, look at this, fear God. In fact, the way I learned uh, what brought this to my mind is prior to my lessons on fear, Julie came to me. She actually studies the Bible. And she's like, uh, who are we to fear that because we'll cast body and soul into hell? hell? And I'm like, okay, I'm being set up here. Uh, God? And she said, read it. Do not be afraid of the one who kills the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid, and the NIV capitalizes, the one. It's not necessarily, it's not God. It, may, it could be God, but it could be Satan. The NIV tries to make you think it's God, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the dominion of Satan. 
And he goes on, and I thought, hmm, well, that's a thought. And I went on to read. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? You've got two little birds sold for the smallest coin that you can have. Yet not one of them falls to the ground without, apart from the will of the Father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So, don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You know, read the context of that. He's saying, don't be afraid of people. And he says, if you have anything to fear, yeah, fear Satan, who can destroy your body and soul in hell. But don't be afraid because there's a God who loves you more. I mean, he, he, cares, for little, he cares for little birds. And he knows how many hairs you have on your head. And so don't be afraid. Hmm. Think about it. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. And I've had people say, well, look, you know, you do your best. You just don't know. You do your best for God. And the day of judgment may come and God says, sorry, away from me, evildoer. And you say, but I went to church. I, I, I you know, I tried to do everything right. That's how we normally look at this passage. But notice this. Looking at it through this lens of 1 John. He says, only he who does the will of my Father. What's the will of the Father? Is a list of do's and don'ts. John chapter 6, verse 40 says here. For my Father's will is this. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. That's my will. Focus on Christ. That's my will. The problem with these people in this passage is they're focused on themselves. He says, away from me. And then they said, but look what I did. I did this for you. I did this for you. I did this for you. And he says, that's not the will of the Father. The will of the Father is me. I think maybe that's what he's saying here. We look to the Son. I, as I have said before, day of judgment comes. If I'm standing before God or kneeling before God or on my face before God, however I am before God, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? I have one answer. Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing I've done. Nothing I've said. Nothing I've worked for. That's all filthy rags. Jesus Christ. His blood. His redemption. The question isn't what I've done, but where's my faith? And we can look at multiple passages that say, I, I found about 140 that said, do not fear. And sometimes it was circumstances and sometimes it was people. And sometimes it's, and it's always because of God. Because life without God is a life of fear. Life with God is a life of peace. All these things over and over, do not fear, do not worry. In me have peace, I will fear no evil. No fear and love, do not be anxious. Over and over and over. And yet we're more comfortable than fear. We're like Adam. Adam was in the garden. Sinned. Hid himself. God said, what's going on? His first reply is, I was afraid. I was afraid. We live a life where we forget God and we talk about living it up. You ever heard that? Term, living it up. Life is short. Live it up. But you know really what 
the reality of life there is we're dying it up. We're not living it up. We die it up. And we get so used to the abnormal, we think it's normal. The abnormal of living a full life, living to the full in the worldly way. We get so used to fear, we think it's normal. We think fear is normal. And before Christ, we're told that we're living in death. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about we're living in death. And we think that that's normal. It says we were once dead in our trespasses, tra- 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 trespasses and sins. That was our state at one time. That was reality. That was, that was truth. But we think that's normal. That's normal life. We go out and we see normal people. We say, that's, that's fine. And it's not. God says that's death. And the God of love is trying to remove us from death, this life of death, to a life of life. That's love. A few weeks ago, we were sharing, uh, some of the guys at his way were sharing, and one of the men said, I had to hit rock bottom before I realized what I needed to do. And, I'm, and I, I just got thinking about that, and, and I thought, you know, Everyone hits rock bottom. And the problem is a lot of people just don't realize that they've hit rock bottom. They're going through life and they think life is fine. Everything's good. And God says, no, that's death. What you're doing is death. And for those who are truly insightful, they find that Christ is the rock at the bottom. Some of us just have to go through literal hell here on earth to, to find Christ. And some are blessed enough to see it early in life and say, yeah, I am living in death. And I need to get out of this. They don't have to hurt themselves physically and tear up their families. They realize it earlier. And that's a blessing. But Christ is that rock at the bottom. We end up being spiritual schizophrenics, as I said. We are afraid of the God who is love. It's crazy. Why? Why do we live that way? I believe it's because we have a lack of faith. Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26 said this to the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. That's why you're afraid. You had no faith. Why are we so afraid? Because we have little faith. Why are we afraid of God? We lack faith in Christ. Beautiful story, prodigal son. Young man leaves with his inheritance, takes off, does what he wants to do, lives it up, dies it up. He didn't realize the moment he walked away from the father that he was beginning, he, he began, he was beginning his death march. He came to his senses, the Bible says, when he was in a pig pen. Oh, now I see. <laughs> He should have seen a long time before that, but now he did. He was hard-headed, like a lot of us. And he wakes up and he says, you know, at my father's house, the slaves eat better than I'm eating. Slaves do better than me. I'm going to go home and I'm going to say to my father, you know, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. And, you know, just make me one of your hired servants. You know this story. He's walking down the road. The father sees him. And the father doesn't wait for him. He just takes off and runs for him. Just takes off. 
And you know that other people followed. All the servants followed. They had to have because he was speaking to them a little bit while later. And he runs and he grabs his son. And his son says, he has this rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And he begins the speech and he gets cut off mid-sentence. Read it. The father doesn't let him stop. He said, oh, my son's come back. He said, get a robe. This is why I know other people there. Get a robe and put it on him. You know where they are? They're away from the, the, uh, the farm. They're away from his land. And he says, I want you to get a robe on him because I don't want him to walk through that, go back home dirty and looking like a pig. I want him covered up in my righteousness. I want him covered with a clean new coat. And give him my, here's my ring. And he puts this ring on him. That's the credit card of the day. Son, you're going to need some bath soap and you're going to need some you know, shampoo and you're going to need some new clothes. Here's my ring. You're going to go buy some. That's the credit card. And he says, bring him in. They, you know how the story goes. But, you know, the way we often live is this. We come through. We know this. We're, we come to him and just, oh, God, I've, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I've sinned against you. And he says, come on. We're going to have a party tonight, boy. You're home. This is great. And we spit in his face and say, but I'm telling you, I'm not worthy. That's how we live our lives. And God says, whoever said you were worthy, I'm making you worthy. You're my son. You're my child. Yeah, you've messed up. Yeah, you smell like a pig. And you look like one too. But I'm going to clean you up. We're going to have a party tonight. Get on that new robe. That, that's a robe of righteousness. We're going to clean you up. We're going to have a party together. But we are people who are more comfortable with the not that God. I mean, you think of God doing that. We're more comfortable with Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand of an angry God. God who is love. I'm looking at what I'm going to leave out. <laughs> oh, let's just go. Let's, let's head down. We're, we're taking too long. All right. What's on, on our next screen? Let me remember. Yeah, you become, oh, yeah, you become like, oh, that's so important. You become like the God you worship. If you, if you believe in an angry God, a vindictive God, a God who is arbitrarily just going to, you know, show his anger, that's how you're going to become. If you worship the God of love, you'll become like that. You'll become like the God who doesn't sin. You'll learn how not to sin if you're worshiping the God of love. I want to give this illustration. It's like crossing a road. Children, have you ever seen children cross roads? It's so, it's so neat. First time they ever cross a road by themselves. You know, you've put the fear of roads in their life. You know, and that's true. I mean, I whipped Matthew first time he got in the road. He was two years old, and I found him in the middle of the road. It was a very, there was no cars around, but I whipped him. I wanted to put the fear of roads in his life. I wanted him to know that it hurt to get out there because I knew the danger. But then the first time they really cross the road, they come to the road, and you're on the other side, and you say, cross the road. It's okay because, you know, it's, it's, you're in the neighborhood. You look both ways. There's no cars. There's no cars driving. You say, cross the road. Come on. What do they do? They look to the right. They look to the left. They look to the right. They look to the left. And you're over there. Come on. Come on. And they look. And then they always do the same. They look. And then suddenly, and there's no cars. And they're running across the road as fast as they can. And you're just praying, don't fall, don't fall. Don't trip and fall. 
That's how we are as children. You know, we, we, you know, when I go out and cross the road now, I look to the left, I look to the right. Not because I'm afraid. I'm not afraid of crossing roads. I cross some really busy roads. So I'm not afraid. But I understand cars, and I have the fear of cars in my life. There's a difference. There's a difference between being afraid and fear. Respect all. Let me, let me give you this. Andy Stanley in this book, the best question ever, he, he gave me some insights. He sums it up this way. He says, here's the fear of the Lord. This is fear of the Lord. Not being afraid of the Lord, but fear of the Lord. Recognize, recognize who God is. Plus reverence, awe. This results in submission. That's the fear of God. I thought it was a good, it's like two pages long, and I'm not going to read it to you. But that sums it up. We recognize who God is. He's the, and so I paraphrase it this way. When we see the God of love, it will knock you off your feet in awe, resulting in seeking his will and doing it. When we really see the God of law, love, we will be in such awe that we'll just say, I, I want to do whatever he says. And I want to stop doing whatever he says stop doing. Because he's just so awesome. That's the fear of God. Let me give you one passage and we're, we're done. Psalms, are, there's so many more. There's so much more here. <laughs> but I'm not going to go anymore. Psalms chapter 33. I was reading this the other day, and it's just like, bing, uh, you know, light bulbs. When, when uh, the Jews wrote their poetry, they would have a line. They would state something, and the second line would say the same thing, all right, in a different way. You'll see it here. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world. That's the earth. That's, you know, parallelism. Let all the earth, let all the people of the world. Let all the earth fear the Lord. He says it in the same way. Let all the people of the wor- world revere him. That's the fear of the Lord. We revere him, not afraid of him. Now, if you're out of Christ, yeah, you should be afraid. But in Christ, you revere him. You're standing all in him. And it goes on in verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Listen, I thought this was beautiful. On those whose hope is in what? His unfailing love. Wow. That's the fear of the Lord. Putting my hope in his love. That's fear. That's the fear of the Lord. If you're in Christ, you don't need to be afraid. If you're in Christ, we fear the Lord. We stand in awe. We, we look at his unfailing love and we say, I, I can't explain it. What can I do except obey him? What can I do but fall down and worship him? What can I do but look at my life and say, man, look at the things I need to change because look at this love of God. And again, that's for those who are in that relationship. 